And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under the road chairs in front of you. You can grab a Bible. We're going to be in Genesis 18, verses 1 to 15 this morning. Follow along with me as I read, beginning in Genesis 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, that's the Lord appearing to Abraham, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely... Return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. May God bless the reading of his word. If you have grown up in the church, there are two foundational truths about God that you likely learned at a very young age. Number one, God is good. And number two, God is great. God is good and God is great. For example, one of the songs that I grew up with and that my kids also love is my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you and you and you and you. You know the song. Now, they might not fully realize it, but that song is teaching them about the greatness and the goodness of God, how our God can do anything consistent with his nature and how our God is for us and not against us. The greatness and goodness of God. Now, that, that's not to say that these two 
truths are the only truths that we ever learn about God, but they are foundational truths about God. In the sense that they lay the foundation that God is good and that God is great. And we see these two truths embedded in Genesis 18. In the first half of Genesis 18, which I read for us, we see that God is great. And then the second half of Genesis 18, which we will look at next week, Lord willing, we see that God is good. And along with these two truths come two questions. This morning we'll be looking at the question in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then next week we'll be looking at the question in verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? In other words, the first question is asking, is God great? And the second question is asking, is God good? And what we will discover over these two Sundays is that yes, God is great. And yes, God is good. This morning, our focus is going to be on verse 14. But in order to get there, we need to understand the context. So I invite you to look back with me at verse 1. It says that the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And this should draw our attention back to Genesis 3, verse 8, where the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, Verse 2 says that Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, in, in this particular time and place, the expectation on Abraham would have been lavish hospitality. But what we see from Abraham in these verses went above and beyond those expectations. Look look at Abraham's response in verse 2. It says, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. So we see a few things happen here. First, it says that Abraham ran from the tent door to meet them. Now, in that culture, old, dignified men didn't run. It's, uh, it's one of the most surprising things about the father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Right? Because Jesus said in the parable, while the younger son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This just wasn't something that happened. Old, dignified men didn't run. Not that they couldn't. They just, it just wasn't done in that particular time and, and place. Yeah, verse 6 says that Abraham went quickly and that he told Sarah to make cakes quick and that he ran to the herd to get a calf and that he told a young man to prepare it quickly. And so we see it. There's, a, there's an urgency to Abraham's hospitality. The second thing we see is that Abraham bowed himself to the earth. Now, the the Hebrew word here for bowed uh, is also translated as worship. In uh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, Abraham is going to say to the young men who are with him, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, Isaac, will go over there and worship and come again to you. It's the same word for bowed here in Genesis chapter 18, indicating that that Abraham's, here he's bowing in worship. 
before them. And then lastly, look at how the text describes these men. Verse 1 says that uh, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the, the covenant name of God, appeared to Abraham. Uh, in verse 3, Abraham says, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servants. Now, this is a different Hebrew word for Lord. This Hebrew word for Lord is, is Adonai, uh, which could just be a, a term of respect, but it's also a title that is used for God. Uh, verse 22 says that the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then in, in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, we see that two angels came to Sodom. And so we see the, the reason why Abraham is running around and, and why he's bowing down in worship is because Abraham recognizes that there was something different about these men. They are no ordinary guests. Now, theologians disagree on, on who these quote-unquote men are. Uh, some say that because there are three of them, that Abraham is being visited here by the triune God, Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. Some say that there are three angels that are speaking the very words of the Lord to Abraham. Uh, some say that uh, the Lord and, and two of his angels are, uh, are here in this, uh, in this text visiting Abraham. So there's a lot of different possibilities here. But whoever these men are, they are no ordinary guests. This is a divine visitation. Abraham is being visited by the Lord. As such, Abraham's response of worship and hospitality, like over, over and above hospitality, is appropriate. And so one point of application from our text that we can consider is that an encounter with the Lord should produce in us worship and hospitality. Should produce in us worship and hospitality. If the Lord truly is the king of the universe, which during our study in Genesis we've seen he is, then he is deserving of our worship. He alone is deserving of our worship. And if every human being truly is made in the image of our creator God, which again, as we've seen throughout Genesis, that is the case, then every human being is deserving of our hospitality. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this idea and says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby... Some have entertained angels unawares. Now, it was literally the case for Abraham in, uh, in his tent that day. Might not necessarily be the case for us. Uh, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 35, Jesus says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And who Jesus is talking to is say, when did we do this? When you did to the least of these, you did to me, Jesus says. 
And here again, this hospitality was literally extended by Abraham to God. But it's a reminder to us that our hospitality that as believers ought to be extended. Now, we certainly don't need to go to the extent that Abraham goes in order to show hospitality, although we could do that. But I believe the reason Moses goes into so much detail about the, the preparation of this meal and, and, and in all that Abraham does is because Moses is contrasting the hospitality of Abraham and Sarah in, in this text, contrasting their hospitality to the lack of hospitality that the angels are going to receive in Sodom in the next chapter, Genesis 19. In other words, this is how you treat your guests. But more importantly, this is how you treat God and his messengers. Worship and hospitality. Uh, verse 8 says that Abraham took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Unlike Adam and Eve, who in covenant with the serpent ate the fruit of the tree of which God had commanded them to not eat, here we have Abraham in covenant with the Lord at this lavish meal with the Lord himself under a tree. Almost as if to say, this is what life in the garden could have been like. This is what you could have had. And so these were no ordinary guests, but this was also no ordinary meal. The, the elements themselves are ordinary. Right? There's, there's bread, there's milk, there's meat. Pretty standard items. There's, there's nothing special about the meal itself other than what the meal conveyed. You see, this was a covenantal meal that communicated Abraham's relationship with the Lord. Years later, the Lord would institute a covenantal meal with the family of Abraham on the eve of the final plague of the death of the firstborn and Israel's rescue out of slavery in Egypt. Years after that, Jesus would also institute a covenantal meal with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion and our rescue out of slavery to sin and death. This is why we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper every Sunday morning during the remembrance service. It's a reminder that we belong to God. The elements themselves are pretty ordinary. We eat a piece of bread and we drink a cup of grape juice. There's, there's nothing special about the meal itself other than what the meal conveys about our relationship with the Lord. Thus, a, a second point of application from our text here is for those who have put, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ is simply to embrace the covenant meal of the Lord's Supper. Doing so in joyful celebration of our deliverance from sin and death and in expectant hope that Christ is coming again 
to take us to be with him forever, where we will eat from another tree, the tree of life, in covenant with the Lord, where everything will be as it was always intended to be. These were no ordinary guests, and this was no ordinary meal. But these divine guests hadn't simply come to have a nice meal, although they do get to enjoy that in the process. They had come to deliver a message, specifically a message to, to Sarah. The Lord says to Abraham in, in verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, your wife shall have a son. Now we've seen this promise mentioned a number of times already. So we, we should be pretty familiar with it by now. But here the promise is moving from general and, and far off. You know, we, we've heard some of the, the language, you know, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's, it's pretty general. We don't know when that's going to happen. But it's moving away from general and to, to more specific and close at hand terms, right? This time next year, Sarah shall have a son. So, so you can see that this is getting more and more real as the promise continues to come down. But then in verse 11, Moses, Moses adds, interestingly, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So not only had Sarah been barren all her life, which is what we've seen numerous times throughout throughout uh, the past few chapters. But she was now post-menopausal, right? Indicating that the promise that she would be a mother next year was completely absurd. By, by any human invention, it could not happen. Well, Sarah's eavesdropping at this point. And when she hears the message, she cannot help but laugh. Saying to herself in verse 13, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Last week we saw how Abraham had laughed and was not rebuked because his laughter was not necessarily one of unbelief. But here, Sarah is confronted by the Lord for her laughter. The Lord says to Abraham in verses 13 to 14, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, but this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the Lord asked them a question, right? He didn't just come down there with, uh, with lightning bolts and, and condemnation. No, he asked them a question, where are you? And then he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you to not eat? He does the same thing with Cain. After Cain killed his brother Abel, the Lord asked him a question, where is your brother Abel? And then later, what have you done? In the same way, the Lord confronts Sarah's sin by asking a question. 
again, no lightning bolts and an immediate condemnation, just why did Sarah laugh? Just like the Lord did with, with Adam and Eve and Cain, the Lord is inviting Sarah to fall upon his grace and mercy. But verse 15 says that Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. Maybe she had convinced herself that it was, it was just a fleeting moment of laughter and, and thus it wasn't a big deal. Maybe she figured that no one could hear her laughter. But it's a foolish thing to deny before the Lord that you didn't laugh when in fact you did. The Lord says to Sarah, no, but you did laugh. In that moment, Sarah understands something about the Lord. She understands that even her unuttered thoughts were fully known to the Lord. In that moment, she understood that God is omniscient and that he knows everything. In that moment, she understood and was confronted with the truth that God is great. Now, ironically, her descendant, David, would write in Psalm 139, verses 1 to 4, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 4, verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's the greatness of God. A.W. Tozer writes, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. God knows it all. It's easy for us to pick on Sarah, but if we're honest, we do the same thing. Maybe we think that God doesn't see our sins. Maybe we think that he must be busy with all the really bad stuff in the world that he couldn't possibly be bothered with my wrongdoings. Maybe we have convinced ourselves that our sins are just little sins. And that's no big deal. But it's a foolish thing 
to stand before the Lord and say, I didn't laugh. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, Sarah had the opportunity to fall upon the grace and mercy of the Lord and say, you know what, you're right. I did laugh. I'm just having a really hard time believing what you're saying. I believe, help my unbelief. She could have said that, but she didn't. And said, Sarah, as to her sin of unbelief, the sin of deception, she lies to the Lord. And notice her motivation for doing so. It says that she was afraid. And, and as we've seen throughout our study in Genesis, fear moves people to do irrational things. Adam hid himself from the presence of the Lord because he was afraid. Abraham lied to Pharaoh because he was afraid of what the Egyptians might do to him. Here, Sarah is afraid and challenges the authenticity of God's promise to do the seemingly impossible. That, that's really at the heart of what, what is taking place here. The, the Lord has just asked, is anything too hard for the Lord? And Sarah is essentially saying, I can think of one thing. But we can understand her apprehension, right? There, there are plenty of reasons why Sarah can't have a son. But what does that matter if the king of the universe is on her side? That there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Later in 2 Kings chapter 4, there's an account of Elisha the prophet who, who wants to do something for this Shunammite woman who has provided food and, and a place for Elisha to stay whenever you pass by their way. But the text says that she has no son and that her husband is old. <laughs> Sound familiar? But Elisha says to the, the Shunammite woman, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Again, sound familiar? Sure enough, the, the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. It's, it's the same language used here in Genesis chapter 18 to describe the birth of Isaac. And, and it's like the author of 2 Kings is seeing similarities between the birth of Isaac and the birth of this Shunammite woman's son. And what all of this does is it points forward to another remarkable birth, right? The birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah would prophesy, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And later, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, Galatians 4 verse 4 says. And so we see that the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of the birth of the Shunammite woman's son and the birth of Isaac and all the other remarkable births throughout the Old Testament because the Lord said to the servant, 
The Lord made this promise to the serpent in Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise of a son to old Abraham and and barren Sarah was pointing forward to the promised son who would come in the person of Jesus Christ. And just like Abraham offered up Isaac as a sacrifice, believing that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back, Hebrews 11 verse 19 says. So also in 2 Kings chapter 4, the Shunammite woman's son would experience death. And Elisha would raise him back from the dead. Which again points forward to Jesus who, like Isaac, was put forward as a sacrifice. And who, like the Shunammite woman's son, experienced death. But whom God raised from the dead to secure our salvation. And so the question is, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is no. there There are things in our lives that may seem impossible to us right now. But do we believe that they are not difficult problems for God? Do we believe that they are not impossible for God? Right, now, we need to be careful that, that we don't leave here thinking that all of our problems will go, go away and, and that all of our dreams will come true. But sometimes we guard ourselves against disappointment so much that we stop believing that God can do impossible things. And we stop praying impossible prayers. And we stop singing childhood songs with impossible lyrics like, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you. Maybe you were dealing with a health issue. Maybe you've recently lost a loved one. Or you have a a loved one who is on their deathbed. Maybe you have a child who is wild and out. Maybe there is an aspect of justice that you are seeking in your life or in the world. And maybe you've convinced yourself that what you are facing is impossible and that there's no, there's no earthly way, no human invention that it could come true. But whatever it is, it's not impossible for God. Now, it's, it's not a guarantee, but perhaps God can do this thing whatever it is. Do we believe this? Do do we believe that God can do the impossible? Do we believe that God can heal? Do we believe that God can bring reconciliation to a relationship? Do we believe that God can bring people to repentance and faith, even people who 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 we think are so far gone? Do we believe that he can bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Do we believe that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us? Do we believe that? 
The, the Lord said to Abraham, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Right? This, this was a promise that they could take to the bank. We don't necessarily have a promise like that. We don't necessarily have a promise like Abraham and Sarah had where, you know, this, this time next year, all of these things are going to come true. And yet, our God loves to do impossible things. And as such, he has made several promises to us in Scripture that we can hold on to when we are facing impossible situations. Uh, Romans 8 verse 1 is one example. Romans 8 verse 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Many of us know that verse. Here's the thing. You know, we, we understand this verse intellectually, but do we believe that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, as, as, as far as the rising of the sun is to its setting. Do we believe that? Do we believe that we've been accepted by God in Christ? Do we believe that we no longer live with guilt and shame? Do we believe that we have had Christ's righteousness imputed to us? Do we believe this? How about the, the promise of God in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9? Right? What, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Right? There is a heaven. That's, that's the promise that is set before us here. Some of you have lost loved ones this last year. Some of you will sadly lose loved ones this year. If they have died in the Lord, do we believe that they will experience unending joy in the presence of Christ their Savior? Do we believe that? Do, do we believe that, that we ourselves are, are closer to heaven now than we have ever been? than we were last year, than we were, than we were when we walked in here this morning, that we're closer to heaven now than we have ever been. Do we believe that? Do we believe the promises of God? Because the, the truth is, if God's people, those who are in covenant relationship with him, who have been called according to his purpose, if God's people fully believed that what he said he will do, their lives would be radically different. We, we don't need greater things to believe. His promises to us are already stupendous. We simply need to believe that he will do them. We need to hold on to God's promises when we are facing the impossible. Hence, don't drop a single anchor. We're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? 
No stopping now. We're almost home. That promised land is calling. We're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then. We're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back. We're almost home. This journey ours together, we're almost home. Unto that great forever, we're almost home. What song anew we'll sing round that happy throne. Come faint of heart, we're almost home. This life is just a vapor, we're almost home. That sun is setting yonder, we're almost home. Take courage, for this darkness shall Break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes. We're almost home. Almost home. We're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord. We are almost home. Some of you may have a Bible translation with a footnote attached to verse 14. That says, or wonderful. Instead of, is anything too hard? Say everything is too wonderful for the Lord. It's because the Hebrew word here for hard is also translated as wonderful. It's the same word in, in Psalm 139, verse 14. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So we could read verse 14 this way. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And the answer is still no. <laughs> there is nothing too hard or too wonderful for our great God. He's, he's got greater things in store than we can even imagine. There's nothing in your life that is too hard for the Lord. There's nothing in the world that is too hard for the Lord. He loves to do the impossible. He has wonders yet to show those who believe. He is our great God. The question is, do you have a God who is great? Is this God, the God of the Bible, your God? I hope so. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises, all of which are yes and amen in Christ. Thank you that we are your people, that you are our God, and that we can trust you for all things. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.